Before we get started, I want to tell you about my new book. It's called The New Mobility Handbook, Rethinking How We Get Around Cities. The book builds on my work on the Smarter Cars podcast here over the last three years as we've explored autonomous vehicles, ride hail, and then micromobility and the impact of all of these new technologies on cities. New mobility options are incredibly popular and can encourage multimodal travel in ways that public transit has not. But these options have also created new challenges for cities that can't be solved by technology alone. We need to combine these new mobility modes with urbanist policies to keep our roads moving. Transportation in cities will not be an either-or solution. We don't have to choose between ride services, bikes and scooters, or getting everyone to ride the bus. It's not either or, it's and. We're going to need all of these technologies working together to rethink how we get around cities. The New Mobility Handbook offers a grand unifying theory of sorts for how we can have the benefits and convenience of new mobility options while also meeting city goals to encourage multimodal travel and reduce traffic and pollution. If you're not familiar with the principles behind urbanist policies like congestion pricing, transit priority, reduction in parking, and reallocation of street space, the New Mobility Handbook provides an introduction to these policies and how they can be used together with new mobility technologies to improve transportation in cities. The New Mobility Handbook is available on Amazon in paperback and Kindle versions. I hope you enjoy the book. This is Smarter Cars, a podcast about autonomous vehicles and the future of transportation. Welcome to Season 5. This is your host, Michelle Kairouz. In our season finale for Season 5, we're talking with Sam Kansara, Senior Product Manager at Waymo, who's responsible for scaling the Waymo One driverless ride service and also Waymo Via. Waymo's Trucking and Logistics Program. Sam, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Can you start by telling us about your role at Waymo and the things you're working on? I am a senior product manager here at Waymo. I am responsible for user experience and our Waymo One ride hailing service. I'm also responsible on the product side uh, for our local delivery business, which is part of Waymo Via which is our trucking and delivery service. So let's start with Waymo One. This is your ride service program. You're currently only operating in Arizona, is that right? Uh, that is correct, yeah, That's a, in the Phoenix metro area. Can you take us through the history of Waymo One? Like, when did it start? Who were your riders? How has it evolved over time? And, and what does it look like today? Yeah, absolutely. So Waymo One is our commercial self-driving service. There's two components to it. There's a public service, and there's also an early rider program, which is a confidential research and development group. Our early rider program launched in 2017. We've served over 100,000 trips in the Phoenix area since then. Shortly after, in 2018, we introduced our public service uh, and, and branded it all as Wingo One. Uh, and now, or I guess I should say pre-COVID, we've had thousands of monthly active users taking rides. Uh, and in summer of 2019, we began ramping up our commercial driverless service to our early rider group. And driverless is right around 5 or 10% of our rides. Obviously, this will continue to scale. But we did pause our service with COVID uh, in March. And so at the moment, we are currently not serving rides. 
You launched the commercial ride hailing service and that's an app that anyone can download in the app store and use your service in Phoenix. How does that work? If I download the app and I want to hail a ride, what if I want to go someplace that you don't go? Like, how do I know where I can go? And then second, do any of the commercial riders get a fully driverless vehicle or is there a safety driver for the commercial riders? So uh, starting with the first part of that, users will download that app like they would any other app. There is an onboarding process where we set up your account, things like making sure that we have your phone number in the event we need to call you, you add a payment method, et cetera. And, and then you know, we wanted to make sure it feels like a easy to use, simple app for our users. They will enter a destination, they'll enter you know, you know, where they are right now, where they want to be picked up. And assuming all of that is within our service territory in the Phoenix area, they will be matched with the vehicle that will come and pick them up and, and take them on their way. So that part of it is hopefully very natural for our users because it's an existing paradigm, something they've seen uh, and experienced hopefully before as well. And, and we do have in our app itself what we call our service area, very clearly indicated. So we show you exactly where we will be able to, to, to serve a trip for you and make sure that it's not a surprise for our users. Setting expectations is one of the most important things with our Waymo and service. It is in many ways common uh, the kind of things that the interactions that you're going to have but at the same time there are things that are different as well with our service and we want to make sure you understand what that is as a user and then are those vehicles with a safety driver or would you as a commercial user potentially get a vehicle without a safety driver is it available to anyone who downloads the app or just to the early riders sorry just to the early riders so if someone downloads the app today after COVID and you guys resume service, they won't get a car without a safety driver unless they're part of your early rider R&D program. Correct. So our early rider program is where we uh, deploy these new kind of services first. And as it reaches that right level where we feel it's, it's appropriate to, we make it available to our Waymo One users as well. And we look forward to making fully driverless rides available to our Waymo users very soon. So tell me about the difference between the regular Waymo One service and the fully driverless where there's no safety driver in the car. Is it the same vehicle with the same software? It is the same vehicle. They're all the the Chrysler Pacifica minivans that you see on the streets. So it is the same vehicle. It's the same software. It is, you know, software that has gone through a variety of testing, quite a lot of testing and validation over a long period of time. So those elements are the same. It's the same way to laugh. And the things that are a little bit different, we make sure that you know that you're going to get a fully driverless ride. So we have our app UI is very clear that, hey, congratulations, you've been matched with a fully driverless ride. And just make sure, again, that the expectations are very clear as part of that. So that's going to be one of the things that's a little bit different. When you get in the ride, the ride is the same. Uh, it's the same car. You get to experience and enjoy the same features. Uh, you get to you know uh, ride in comfort. Uh, the things that are different we often see is, you know, the, the rider's sense of uh, that first time they take that fully driverless ride, of the awe that they feel of, wow, there really is nobody behind this wheel. You know, when they're, <laughs> when they're in that driver uh, with the safety driver in the vehicle, they, you know, our users, they know that the car is driving itself. But the fact that you see somebody in that driver's seat is still this mental, I don't know, if it's comfort or, or is a sense of familiarity of, well, okay, this is a self-driving car. That's amazing. Uh, but when you get in that first time, is is well, we see people just kind of just randomly start giggling and laughing because they're like they're actually experiencing that and seeing this car going 45 miles an hour down a road with no driver in it. 
but the, otherwise the experience is the same, right? And, we, and that's actually intentional. Product philosophy for us is that as much as possible, and again, this is this is something that we hold near and dear to our hearts, that the experience is meant to be the same. The, the, the value of the service with the safety driver for us is to learn as much as possible and to make sure our users get the almost the exact same experience as they would when we when they get a fully driverless ride. You know what's funny about it is that because you're using a form factor that can have a human driver, right? You've got the driver's seat, you've got the steering wheel that's turning around on its own. I wonder if that feels more weird than in the future if you have a different form factor that doesn't accommodate a human driver. There's no steering wheel, there's no seat where you ex would expect a driver to be. I wonder if the experience will be different. Yeah, I, I wonder the exact same. I don't know if it would make it, if it makes it feel less sense of awe or a greater sense of awe. I have no idea, but uh, you know, that, that um, I do think that first ride is super magical for our users. So we're very excited to continue to stay up. So is the operational design domain the same for the Waymo One vehicles that are operating in a fully driverless manner? It's very similar. There are some nuances that are a little bit different. And so our commercial driverless ODD, as we call it, the operational design domain, is, is, has some nuances. One is the territory. It's a little bit smaller. It's 50 square miles, about the size of San Francisco. And our service with the safety drivers is a little bit bigger. And we do that because we're actually trying to collect extra data. We want to make sure we understand as we continue to explore parts of the territory that we would eventually want to expand into, that we are making sure we're evaluating our that as well. So there are some minor nuances, but for the most part, I'd say they're, they're very, very similar. What are the operational design domain constraints more generally for the regular Waymo One service where you do have a safety driver? It sounds like it's a little bigger ge geographical area, but I presume that there are some constraints on those vehicles, maybe weather, do you drive at night? What are the general parameters of your operational design domain for the cars that have a safety driver? So first and foremost, we do drive 24-7. Our service is 24-7. So we will, if you happen to be out late at night and you need a ride at 2 in the morning, Waymo is, is definitely an option for you. So that's definitely part of that. And the main constraints that we place on ourselves is our territory. And the reason is, is we think about what is the right way to scale our territory over time. And we don't want our driver product to be so different. As uh, Going back to that product philosophy, we want this to be as similar as possible. And so we will push the envelope a little bit with our driver product to make sure that we're gathering data and understanding performance uh, as we are preparing to make something ready or available to our commercial driverless service. So we are always, we always think about that as in, you know, there might be some, let's say maneuvers that we might be comfortable doing in, in a driver world because we want to gather data. We want to understand how our vehicle will perform. We want to make sure we understand any nuances that uh, we need to include in our development. And, and over time, the intention is obviously we want to we want to make sure that that set of new capabilities is also available. So everything is about data collection, understanding it, making sure that we've validated that these features work as intended, and then make it available to our commercial driverless uh, product as well. I think that's one of the most interesting things about operational design domain. You know, we all hear about geography and we hear about day versus night or certain weather constraints, but 
are the cars taking a different route, making more right-hand turns and left-hand turns, or are there certain maneuvers they just can't do? Or how do you guys think about those types of constraints on your operational design domain? So I'd say the main philosophy point that I can I can probably share is going to be uh, we want to make sure that anything our driverless vehicles are going to be doing in the course of their operation is something that is well-tested and well-founded. So that's the main uh, point that I'd want to highlight. If for whatever reason we don't believe that this is the right set of things to be doing at the moment, you know, we can make those adjustments as we need to. But with drivers in the vehicle, we intentionally are going to do something a little bit different, a little bit broader for you know, some period of time to gather that data. But that's pretty much the main balance with which we think about it. We want to make sure that what we're doing is going to be well-tested, well-established. So how do you think about expanding the operational design domain over time? You mentioned geography. Is that the hardest part? And what is it that's kind of a gating factor? Like, why can't you just go out tomorrow and expand to 50 more cities? Is it really about the mapping and testing of particular routes uh, within certain geographies? Yeah, so we've learned a lot in these last 10 years. And one thing that we've definitely learned is that expanding our product is going to be gradual. It's going to take time. And it's, it's going to be one that uh, we want to make sure we do in a slow and a measured way. And part of that is as we consider expansion to other territories that we've equivalently, as we were just mentioning, gathered the right amount of data to feel confident and, and that w- what we're going to be deploying is going to be safe. And so that's, as we think about, again, territory expansion or other elements of our ODD, it's all about taking that step-by-step approach to make sure that as we are actually deploying our vehicles and collecting data, because that's you know clearly what we're going to do first, we're going to collect data, we're going to build our maps, we're going to make sure that operationally we feel comfortable about any expansion or new territory and, and validate this to you know the level that we feel is sufficient to make sure it's safe enough to put riders in the car. So it's going to be one of those areas that's going to take time. It's going to be step by step. It's going to be gradual. And then that's that's just what we've gotten from our, you know, our years of experience. There's a certain amount of testing and comfort that you got from testing different road scenarios. And I'm trying to figure out how much of that kind of applies across all geographies and how much is specific to a particular city doing additional high-definition mapping, additional testing on those specific roads. Is that like the last 10% before you can launch and 90% is all the great experience that you've had over the last 10 years? Or do you feel like you're starting over every time you launch in a new city? Yeah, so uh, you're asking the, the, the question around, you know, is technology being overfit to any specific market? And and for us, the way that we also think about it is, is clearly it's in our product design that we want this to be a technology that can easily expand to new territories. And once we have a foundational level of mapping, et cetera, built, that we can easily apply it. What we've also learned, though, is that, you know, the various markets, various cities have nuances that are important for us to understand. So driving in you know, a, a market which has completely different the way that the roads are oriented or the way that the traffic happens to flow, the natural kind of local ways of driving, because it's important for us that we also fit in with the way that the community drives. All these sort of factors that are subtle is important for us to learn. So for us, it's going to be similar in that you know we do want to get into that market. We do need to make sure that we are driving in and discovering those types of nuances and how we drive and how the others in the community, other road users, are also driving, uh, so that we can make sure that it, it ultimately 
that we have validated that it is safe and we feel comfortable putting the vehicles in driverless with riders on the, on the road. So in Phoenix, you don't get too much weather, but you do get extreme heat, like 115 degrees in the summer. How have your vehicles handled the extreme heat, and have there been any issues with sensors or any other aspect of vehicle operations? Yeah, so Phoenix does get very hot. I think just recently it's been you know, over 110 degrees on a pretty regular basis, and the folks at Phoenix are resilient to that kind of heat. Uh, and our, our vehicles are designed to operate in that kind of environment as well. Uh, and so as the temperatures have been high at some periods of the day, in you know, the middle of the day, we can continue operating our, our service as well. Uh, we have different ways of handling various things that can happen at either high or low end of the temperature spectrum. But we want to design the system to make sure it can up during the times with which is pretty standard temperature for a given market. So one of the ways that I think ride services are contemplating handling some of the limits of geography and operational design domains is to be able to offer a human driver for rides that are not serviceable by the autonomous vehicle. I think, you know, Lyft and Uber would like to go down this road. I know you've done some work with Lyft as well. Can you talk about how you're thinking about that, what your relationship is with Lyft, and how Waymo is thinking going forward as you expand about whether to partner with services that also use human drivers? Yeah, so we have a, a great partnership with Lyft in the Phoenix area. Uh, their bounds of that partnership are, are what we have deployed with them is a uh, if a user, a Lyft user, is in the Lyft app and happens to be taking a ride within what's our territory, so that you know that part of uh, the, the Metro Phoenix area, that they will see an option to uh, potentially hail a Waymo uh, and use a Waymo uh, instead of a traditional Lyft vehicle. And so we've seen great adoption and usage in that product as well with Lyft, and it's been a great partnership. Uh, and we are uh, always looking for new partnership opportunities like that. That's been a great way for us to learn uh, about the different products that we are operating, how users coming in from very different entry points can view autonomous vehicles. If you think about users that are going to sign up via Waymo, they have a little bit of an expectation that it's an autonomous vehicle, that there's a service that they're signing up for. So the expectations, again, going back to that, the kind of the most fundamental things for us is making sure users have an expectation. When they download the Waymo app, they expect a, a Waymo, so they know that it will be an autonomous vehicle. But users that come in through other partners may not have that exact same expectation. So it's great for us to learn about that as well. Uh, and we view these partnerships as, as very important for our product development. So part of your role at Waymo is to help scale the Waymo One ride service. As you think about that, is Waymo anticipating operating independently in most markets with its own ride service or doing more of a partnership approach where Waymo provides the technology but is plugging into a broader ride service like uh, Uber or Lyft? Yeah, so fundamentally, Waymo is a technology company. We build the hardware and software that in conjunction form our self-driving system, what we call the Waymo driver. That, that's fundamentally what we do. It's in our business to, to build the Waymo driver. And there are a variety of applications of that technology. Uh, so one is going to be what we call Waymo One, which is a, a ride-along service, and there's uh, our Waymo Via, which is a trucking and local delivery. And we build this Waymo driver to begin with 
to operate across a number of different vehicle platforms. Uh, so it does operate on, you've seen it in, in our history with the Prius and with the Lexus, with the with Pacifica minivans. And, and that is a direction that we anticipate continuing to go. And whether those vehicles are made available through our service or potentially via partner, those are things that we're, we're open to. So in California, we see uh, a lot of just low-speed fender benders where human drivers bump into an autonomous vehicle because they are a little impatient and the autonomous vehicle tends to have a more cautious approach to merging and things like that. How have you felt that the Waymo One vehicles operate with human drivers? Yeah, I'd say that what we want to do is to, to make sure that we drive in a natural way. That's important for us. And it's important not just for comfort of our riders, but it's also for the comfort of other road users, other people that will be behind us and, and maybe doing exactly what you described. So that is super important to us. Uh, and we're continuously getting better and learning more about that. And so every incident like is a close call or something along those lines that you were describing as well is opportunities for us to learn about it and make sure that we can can deliver on it. My personal experience for all the rides I've taken in Phoenix is that it feels very natural, that it feels like I'm not the one that's going to be sitting in the back and trying to you know, backseat drive on a self-driving vehicle. <laughs> it feels like a very natural experience to me to begin with. Right. So, so I think that you know, we're, we've uh, always more to go, but I think we've already done a, a great job with that. So many people in the industry and in the media have asked the hypothetical question, how safe is safe enough to deploy an autonomous vehicle service? How will we know when autonomous vehicles are safe enough to remove the safety driver? But for Waymo, that's not a hypothetical question. You actually have removed the safety driver for some number of rides. How did the company get comfortable making the decision that it was ready in the Phoenix area to go ahead and offer a service without a safety driver. Yeah, I've been at Waymo for about two years. The thing that's been the most impressive to me is that you hear the line, but I, I can vouch for it to be true that safety is really one of the most important principles that we have within this company. It's not just a principle, it's actually, it's a culture. And so we're all encouraged to make sure that we're doing what we think is the right things to be safe and great members of the community as well. And so from the beginning, I'd say in this case, deploying this technology, we view it with a great sense of responsibility. We, all of our, everything that we're going to deploy in a driverless world has, goes through a lot of validation a lot of evaluation of metrics. We want to make sure we believe that it's safe and we have uh, we have you know, data that will give us that indication as well. And so we, again, it's just part of our culture. So from the beginning, we need to make sure that we have satisfied ourselves. And there's many times that we haven't satisfied ourselves, but once we do satisfy ourselves is when we use that as a threshold for when we're willing to deploy technology like this in the market. You know, it's interesting. There's been a lot of pressure from consumer groups and others to get the government to issue federal safety regulations specifically governing autonomous driving systems. And at the moment, it's really up to each company to decide when they feel safe based on the state where they're deploying or, or testing. I think there's an interesting debate there. In some ways, when it's on the company, it seems like it puts a lot more pressure on the company because you don't have some specific line in the sand that the government has given you. I'm not really sure what that line in the sand would look like, and I think that's part of the reason why we don't have federal rules. But how do, how do you think about that in terms of 
the pressure that you feel as a company to make that decision on your own? Yeah, that's we view it with grave responsibility, making sure that we have, again, going back to that culture of safety that's really in our DNA, making sure that we feel confident in what we're doing. We know that this is going to be an area where we can very easily and very quickly lose trust if we do things that are not going to be safe or not in the best interest of our community. And so for us, making sure that we've satisfied ourselves, that's a, it's a really high bar to get there. And while there is no playbook for this, uh, you know, we've you know, established what we feel is a good set of guidelines to make sure that we are going to do right by the community to, to make sure that we, we continue to earn the trust. Let's talk a little bit about some of the benefits of autonomous vehicles, particularly in our ride service context. We hear a lot about safety and how many car crashes are based on human failings. I think 30% of fatalities on our roads are caused by drunk driving. There are a number of other issues that humans have as a group. But it seems like a ride service really serves two groups. There are people who could drive a car who don't want to. They want to avoid traffic or parking. They want to be able to have some drinks or engage in activities like reading during a ride. And then the second group are people who can't drive themselves, either due to age or disability or medical condition or for financial reasons where they can't afford to buy a car and insure a car, operate a car. So how do you think about it as you're deploying this ride service in Phoenix? How are you serving those two groups of potential riders? And how do you think offering an autonomous service will further the benefits that can be available? Yeah, that's a great question. It, when we think about the value prop or the, the, the pillars by which we are going to build our service, we really we look at a couple of things. First and foremost, fundamentally, our product is going to be based on a foundation of trust. We want to make sure users trust us and make sure they understand that they can trust our driving uh, and they can feel at ease and safe from others, whether it be externally or potentially internally to the car, that this is going to be a space that's safe for them. And so that can benefit all both of those kind of different populations that you just mentioned as well. The second most important thing for us as well is this aspect of convenience. It's going to be the product that we're building is that it's, it's fast, it's predictable, it's easy to use. It provides this sense of freedom that maybe others may not have had before. It provides a sense of access that people may not have been able to uh, afford before either. Right? So we actually think that there's a, a tremendous value to not just end users, but also to cities or others that are looking to partner with companies like us to help with their transit systems, to help with potentially things like last mile connectivity for people that might not have easy access to transportation. So there's a, a lot of opportunity that is opened up because of the, either the fundamental, fundamental nature of the autonomous vehicles or what it empowers others to do. Uh, ultimately when this is deployed. There are always these studies that people trot out suggesting that Americans are not ready for autonomous vehicles, that they don't trust them, that they are afraid to ride in an autonomous vehicle. But it seems like once you get in one, the experience universally is that people are bored and the novelty of it wears off pretty fast. What have you seen overall in your reactions from riders? I, I think that you, you've actually you've hit one of the first observations kind of right on the head. In our own studies, you know, there there is often, in, or at least in some cases, some skepticism about not really being sure that this is going to, you know, what what to think about this, right? Well, this is great new technology, but really don't know what it means. I haven't experienced it. 
but almost universally, after that first ride, there is this kind of this uh, aha moment of being able to finally understand what, what this really means and what this can really offer. And so that it develops after that first ride this sense of you know, comfort with the technology, familiarity. It also builds this uh, starts to build a sense of trust. And actually, when we think about user experience, which is a big part of my role, building on that is actually one of the most important things that we think about at our current stage of maturity. We focus on that first ride. Uh, you, you hear me say this over and over again because it's, because it's so important, but setting expectations is super important. And when you get in that vehicle, we try to make sure that you, know, you understand not just by you know, experiencing the ride itself, but through the gentle nudges that we have to actually get you familiar with the technology. The passenger screen that's inside the vehicle, we explicitly use it as a way to show you what the car sees. It's going to be a 3D world of everything that our sensors are, are observing and, and shown to you as a user in a way that you can understand. One of the values of it is, one, because people love exploring the tech, and that's a, that's a great way for them to go do that. Uh, but two, also because it actually starts uh, helping them trust that this, this vehicle and this technology is, is actually it's doing the things that it's supposed to be doing and doing them super well. If I look out the window in the backseat of a car, you know, I may not observe this thing that's over the car next to me, but our sensors are high up and they can see those things pretty well. And we show it to me on a screen. And so we think that these kinds of ways of helping you become familiar with the technology to actually to make it feel every day to build trust is going to be an important part of building that sense of comfort with this technology as it scales. So why don't we turn to the Waymo VIA program? Does this include Waymo's long-haul trucking, testing with Class 8 trucks, as well as more local delivery and logistics? Yeah, so whereas Waymo 1 is about uh, moving people, so to speak, uh, Waymo VIA is about moving commercial goods. And so it includes both a long-haul trucking component as well as a local delivery component. Let's start with the, the bigger trucks, the 18-wheelers. Uh, Waymo is not building trucks itself. You're a technology layer. Who are your partners making the trucks, and how do you integrate the Waymo driver technology into the vehicles and the sensors? Yeah, so we, not too dissimilar to ride-hailing, believe that the self-driving technology is going to make trucking safer, stronger, more efficient. And we are working closely with the ecosystem, OEMs and tier ones, fleets, drivers, et cetera, to, to roll this out. You know, at this stage, we're really focused on learning about trucking-specific challenges for our driver. We need to understand those differences and make sure that the product that we're building is going to be able to solve some of the, the, the challenges that the trucking industry experiences. I personally focus on the local delivery elements of uh, Waymo Fiat which is currently operational in our service territory in Phoenix, Arizona. And, and similarly, just like, just like with the, the trucking elements, we're exploring how the Waymo driver can provide customer and operational benefits to our partners uh, and, and clients safely. So our current partnerships for, for local delivery, we have a partnership with AutoNation, where we're delivering car parts to and from dealerships. We also have a partnership with UPS, where we're shuttling packages between UPS stores and their Tempe Hub. So, so lots of activity happening in Waymobia for sure. And for the local delivery part of the Waymo Via service, what types of vehicles are you using? We're we're using the same vehicles that we're using for ride hailing. We're using our our Chrysler Pacifica minivans, 
and in, in some cases as needed, we may pull out the seats like we do with, you know, with um, in our use case with uh, UPS to get a little bit more capacity. But the way we see local delivery um, uh, kind of play out a bit is that it is fundamentally tied to ride hailing in many different ways. And to want to make sure as much as possible that we're, we're actually kind of learning in tandem as both of these technologies develop. So it's important for us to explore all the different use cases that we have with the vehicle platform and both from a delivery and a ride hailing point of view. So is Waymo considering sort of a mid-sized truck, like a, a brown UPS truck size vehicle for delivery purposes, or are you sticking more with the minivan size or the Class 8 larger truck? Yeah, there's some, um, uh, I don't have additional information to share at this time, except that we're always looking at our vehicle platform, our portfolio and partnerships, uh, and always open to opportunities. And has Waymo done anything with the smaller form factors? I know there are some companies that are looking to do local deliveries using more of a electric cargo bike or uh, autonomous vehicle that would ride in the bike lane or on the sidewalk. Has Waymo focused its Waymo driver into smaller vehicles? Yeah, it's definitely been an area um, that has been explored in the past. Our focus uh, is around uh, looking at our, our um, how local delivery works in tandem, as I mentioned just a moment ago, with our ride-hailing service. So our focus is on the form factor that we are already using for ride-hailing and how we can apply that to a, as many different use cases and contexts as possible. So Phoenix, where you guys are operating now, is a little more suburban in its layout. But when you look at a, a dense urban environment like a San Francisco or Manhattan, there's a lot of concern at the city level about speed and about managing all the different road users that are out there, lots of pedestrians and cyclists and people riding scooters. How is Waymo thinking with its various products about how to manage a more dense urban environment? So ultimately for us, driving in a dense urban environment is going to be critical for our expansion, for our maturity. That, that's going to be inevitably the direction we need to go in. And making sure that we can handle those kinds of questions with a high rate of pedestrian interaction, high rate of vehicle traffic, high rate of other drivers potentially not always quite abiding by the same you know, lane markings or others. That's, again, that's part of the set of problems that we know we'll need to, to, to address as our technology develops. And going back to a, a, a question you had asked me earlier about new markets and, and what's different, that's part of what we learn. So as we actually deploy in a new market to start collecting data, we learn about what is that pedestrian density, how, you know, how close do they creep into the street like in New York before the, you know, while the cars are still going. And making sure that our vehicles can accommodate in that world is, is, a, is super important and part of our roadmap that we have to develop part of the things that we, we understand as we start collecting data in those markets. A lot of urbanists believe that if we lowered the speed limit in dense urban environments where there are a lot of pedestrians or other road users, that it would dramatically improve safety. And uh, I can't help but think about the Google Firefly 
which I think had a 25 mile an hour speed limit as a, a low speed electric vehicle. Have you thought about bringing back a smaller form factor for use solely in, in dense urban environments? Yeah, our focus right now is on the, the partnerships and building the Waymo driver in the two existing vehicle platforms, kind of like the path that we've done with with both our Chrysler Pacifica minivans and the Jaguar I-Pace all electric vehicle. So that, that's the direction that we think is going to be the, the, the best way for us to deploy the Waymo driver is, is to find you know, the right partners that we can develop uh, the technology and, and, and adapt our technology for those various different platforms as well. All right, I'm putting in a pitch. Bring back the Firefly. And I, I'm, uh, I'm was sad that it was before my time, but the people that had worked at Waymo uh, during that time period all got these memento little Firefly toys that they oh. keep on their desk. <laughs> and it's a little badge of how long you've been at the company if you have a little Firefly uh, oh. toy. Uh, <laughs> every year there's always a, hey, can we make more of those? Those would be great to have. So yeah, they're right. definitely fun. So you talked about the Waymo driver being a technology that can be applied in different form factors. Is Waymo focused on ground transportation only, or are you looking at VTOL or any of these air delivery with your autonomous driving system? Yeah, who knows what the future holds, but our focus on developing the driver at the moment is, is I guess it's safe to say ground transportation and the application of our software hardware to actually navigate the world on streets. So that that is our, our focus, although I'd love to see a, a Waymo flying car. Uh, you know, I'd say that our focus is on, 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 on driving. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It was great to hear what you guys are doing with the Waymo products. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I, I hope you can tell we're, we're super passionate about this. So uh, I appreciate the opportunity to get to share that with you. Thanks again to Sam for joining us. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. For the show notes for this episode and all of our season five episodes, please check out our Substack publication at smartercars.substack.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.